0: let's pray together please lord this morning we pray that as we open a scripture that lord you'd speak to us uh, directly from you not uh, not from me not my opinions but lord that you that you would simply channel your word um through me um Lord, as we humble ourselves for the next few minutes, we pray, Lord, that you would, that you would expose the areas of our lives where, where you need to be more active, where we need to confess, where we need to give you access, where, Lord, we need to surrender. Lord, may, may the next few moments of hearing yet another sermon, may it not simply go in one ear and out the other. May it not be just another ritualistic thing that we do. Lord, may it take on new meaning may you speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, if you were to go around and ask some of the kids that are in school each day, how's school going? You'd probably get a variety of answers, but I would imagine that one answer you'd get from some is, it's boring. You know, when they first start school back in August and they get to see their friends again or they start with some new curriculum or whatever it may be and they start up new activities, boy, it's exciting. You know why? Because it's new and it's fresh. I've got one that just moved into middle school for the first time this year and changing classes and all. Boy, that's really exciting. And getting your locker and whatever. But there there comes a time when you're doing the same thing every day, all day, every week, that it just gets boring, doesn't it? I don't see the point in what we're doing. When am I ever going to use this stuff? You know, and and it can get very, very boring and meaningless. And I'm tired of it. Well, it's only been a month, yes, but it's boring. So much of what we do is like that, isn't it? I've, I'm convinced, the older I get, I'm convinced that most of life is just boring. It's just boring. There's nothing particularly exciting about your daily routine, is there? It's just a routine. You get up, you make your coffee, you go get a shower. Drink seven or eight cups of coffee, take another shower to wake up. I don't know what you do, but you you know, you, you just, and then you drive the same path to work every day, you know, or as, as I see some of our fellows and I see them in the store up here at Duncan's, you go to the same place with the same fellows every single morning. Now, some of that, you say, well, that, that can be just monotonous and boring. I, I hope this morning that we can look at some of the things and in particular, one thing that we are commanded to do in scripture and we'd say, you know what, yeah, it's the same thing that we do a lot. We do it over and over and over again, but but it's not boring, and it's not ritualistic, and it's not meaningless. There's something about our rituals that can be very important to us. I tell you what, I know, and I joke about those fellows up at the store, but you know what I can count on every morning? If I go in there and get me a sausage, egg, and cheese biscuit or two, you know, if I go in there... I'm going to find those guys in there. And I'm going to find some smiling faces and some guys just kind of enjoying one another's company, drinking some coffee, and I can shake a hand. And there's something incredible about that to me that, you know what, I can count on that. And it takes on some new life, and I know there's some fellows I can count on. I hope that we can look at our rituals and say, you know what, it's a reminder of something. Something important to me. It's not just going through the motions. We're in a series called Celebrate, a sermon series. And if you've not been with us, let me catch you up to speed real quick. We're leading up to, on November 6th, a celebration service for our church. We're celebrating this year 170 years. Our church was founded in 1846, and so it's been a long time. And We're leading up to a a large celebration service on November 6th, and it should be a really great day for us. And in the, the preparation for that, what I'm doing is going back and looking at some of the celebrations that were given to us or at least described for us, in the Old Testament. Many of you may have heard of the Sabbath, or the Passover, or even the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and so on. And so we're looking at those celebrations. What can we learn from those as modern-day Christians, not as ancient Jews, but as modern-day Christians? What can we learn from those? What's the timeless message, and how then can we apply some of those things to our lives? And so that day is going to be a great day to celebrate, November 6th. And so this series really is meant to lead up to that. So far what we've seen in just a couple weeks, a couple sermons of this, we've seen the weekly celebration of Sabbath, we've seen the monthly celebration of the New Moon Festival, and today we're going to look at the first of several annual celebrations, annual feasts that God commanded. We're going to look this morning at the Feast of Passover, which was also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They sort of flowed right into one another. Now, there were two main rituals, if you will, for the ancient Jews that God put into place. One was circumcision. The other was Passover. This morning, we're going to focus on the the ritual of Passover. If you've got your Bible handy, I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 is where we see the Passover happen for the first time. If you know the story of the ancient Israelites, uh, then then maybe some of this will be familiar to you. If not, let me kind of catch up. They were in slavery by the end of. Let me say this: by the end of Genesis, uh, the the nation was on the move, or the the people of Israel uh, on the move. And then at the beginning of Exodus, uh, they found themselves in Egypt, and their numbers grew. And the Pharaoh decided, you know what? We're we're threatened a little bit by these folks. Let's enslave them, and let's make sure that they don't take us over. And so we see that. And so for 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 several. A 100 years they are in slavery and then god it says has heard their prayers and he sends moses to get them out of slavery and moses goes before the pharaoh and he says let my people go and pharaoh laughs at him and says get out of my court it's not going to happen and moses comes back repeatedly and says let my people go and pharaoh laughs him out of the court again and eventually moses says let my people go and if you don't some bad things are going to happen, and those bad things begin to happen. God was determined that Pharaoh was not going to win, and when God determines that he's going to win, obviously, guess who wins? And so we understand that Pharaoh was at a serious disadvantage. God sent several plagues, and nine of those had been completed by the time we get to Exodus chapter 12, but none of them were severe enough, at least in Pharaoh's mind, to warrant him letting everyone go. Until Exodus chapters 12 and thirteen. If you look with me in the, the first verse here of chapter 12, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's households, one animal, animal per household. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each person will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You were to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals. At twilight. So just stop for there for just a second. Kind of catch up. Here's what's happening. God says, this is to be the first month, and there's going to be a celebration. There's going to be something that happens. There's going to be some event that takes place. And later on, God will describe it as this ritual that follows. Here's what you're to do. So he says, on the 10th day, you're to select a perfect lamb or goat. And on the 14th day, those will be slaughtered. Look at verse 12. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat them. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire with, along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over fire. Its head as well as its legs and inner organs. Do not let any of it remain until morning. You must burn up any part of it that does, that does remain until morning. Here is how you must eat it. Dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you are to eat it in a hurry, uh, it is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I am the Lord. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God says you're to select a perfect animal on the 10th, slaughter it on the 14th, take its blood, spread it on the doorpost. And on the night when I pass through Egypt in order to enact this final plague that will kill all the firstborn, both men and animals, all the firstborn will die. If I see the blood on your doorpost, what does he say? I will pass over you. And so that's the idea of the idea of Passover is that God says, if you are covered by the blood, you will be passed over for judgment. Judgment will not fall upon you or your household if you cover your door with this blood. And so that's the event. God is going to show himself to be the great deliverer of Egypt. And in so doing, he will execute judgment on Israel's enemies and on those who enslaved her. Now, the ritual, God says, begins here in verse 14. Look at this. This day is to be a memorial for you, and you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Now, keep in mind, it hasn't even happened yet. God is already setting it up as something they're going to do long term. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statute. You must eat unleavened bread for seven days. On the first day, you must remove yeast from your houses. Whoever eats what is leavened from the first day through the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. You are to hold a sacred assembly on the first day and another sacred assembly on the seventh day. No work may be done on those days except for preparing what people need to eat. You may, you may only do that. You are to observe the festival of unleavened bread, because on this very day I brought your ranks out of the land of Egypt. You must observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent statute. You are to eat unleavened bread in the first month from the evening of the 14th day of the month until the evening of the 21st day. Yeast must not be found in your houses for seven days. If anyone eats something leavened, that person, whether a foreign resident or native of, of the land, must be cut off from the community of Israel. Do not eat anything leavened. Eat unleavened bread in all your homes. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select an animal from the flock. And and basically what he does here is he passes on to the Israelites what they are to do. The, The idea, by the way, of eating the unleavened bread signified really two things for them. One was that they were in such a hurry to get out of the land of Egypt that they didn't have time to bake the bread and let it rise. They just baked it without any leaven in it. Secondly, it symbolized sin in the camp and the idea that they were tainted in some way, the, the, the yeast and the leaven uh, affecting the bread. And so they, they, God establishes this event that he's going to pass over them and then a ritual by which they will remember what God had done. So it's ordained by God. It was commemorating what he had done for them. And it was a reminder that, that he had uh, freed them from slavery. He saved them from death. He preserved them as they followed him. It was the last seven days. It was also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It began as an event and turned into a ritual. Now, why would God, from the very outset, establish a ritual for them to remember? He hadn't even done what he said he was going to do yet. And he already says, this is going to be a day that you're going to remember. You're going to have some ritual things that you do. One of the reasons was because this event was just so huge and so important. It was their National Day of Independence, if you will. It was their July 4th. It was the day that they were really finally constituted as the nation of Israel as they're delivered from slavery. Nothing in their history had ever been so important. It was the fulfillment of God's promise to them that he would that He would establish them as a nation. You know, so it's so it's important and, and also the, the generations that were to follow them weren't there at the Passover. This is interesting. God says you're to pass this on. You'll celebrate it throughout your generation, says in verse 14, as a permanent statute. There's only a handful of people, really, in the history of, of, of the Jewish nation that were actually there at the Passover. So God says you're going you're to have something that they will vicariously participate in what took place. And as a reminder, as a way to bring history to life, that's what you'll do. Through the ritual, they were signifying their identification, with what took place at the Passover, agreeing with its implications for their lives. It was a way of reiterating their commitment to and preserving and passing along this message of the Passover. It made the story come alive again. It was no longer just an old story. And so God said, here's the event, and here's the ritual. And when you read something from the Old Testament... You can't just take it and yank it up out of its context, historical or literary or otherwise, and plop it down in Murray, Kentucky on September 4, 2016 and say, go and do likewise. I'm not going to tell you that on the 10th day of this month you need to go select a goat or a sheep and then four days later slaughter the thing at twilight, roast all the meat, eat everything of it that you can, burn whatever's left over in the morning, put some blood on your doorpost, and then you're going to get something special from God in the mail. I can't, I can't, that's not what I'm telling you, okay? Not, now, I will say that there are some who would look at that and say, well, I, you know, uh, this is what God said they were to do, I guess. We need to do this. You might get yourself in a little bit of trouble. Some folks look at you a little cross-eyed if you can, you know, take your best sheep and go slaughter the thing and then put the, I don't know. But that's not the point of the passage for us. What we have to do in order to understand Old Testament passages, especially Old Testament sacrificial law, is to filter it through all 66 books of the Bible and say, what did Jesus say about this? What did Jesus do about this? How does the rest of the Bible look at Jesus compared to this? And that's where we get our answer for what about us? The question is, are we still supposed to be celebrating the Passover? And the answer is no, we're not. We're not supposed to be still celebrating it in this way. The New Testament tells us very plainly that Jesus himself is our Passover. He is our Passover lamb. He is the one whose blood covers us. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing blood? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Are you covered by the blood? That's the question. And not the blood of the sheep, which was an incomplete and renewable sacrifice, if you will. It's once and for all, are you covered by the blood of Jesus? He is the one, the New Testament tells us, who saves us from death. Delivers us from slavery to sin. He is the one who provides for us as we follow Him. And so we are not bound to follow this particular Scripture in Exodus chapter 12 in the same way that the Israelites were. Jesus, during Passover week, the week that He was crucified, He instituted something to replace Passover. We call it communion or the Lord's Supper. And it commemorates the events of the crucifixion, the resurrection. And so we have a ritual based upon an event... In a similar fashion to the Israelites, we look back on an event and Jesus instituted a ritual that we are to continue until he returns to take us home with him. But we have the same problem the Israelites had here in 2016. Our problem is very simple. We weren't there. We weren't there. Now what I mean by that is none of us were present at the crucifixion. Not one of us. Some of us are a little bit older than others, but none of us were there at that time. Not a single one. None of us were there at the empty tomb. So we weren't physically present. Just like many of the Israelites later on, of course, were not physically present at the Passover event in Exodus 12. There were some who certainly were present. You had the women around the cross, the women at the tomb, you had... Peter and John, who ran to the tomb and saw Jesus, you had Jesus appearing to many of his disciples, and Paul said up to five hundred people saw him after he was resurrected. You had folks who saw him crucified and saw him resurrected, but we weren't part of it. And so our problem is we weren't there. You say, I, you know, if, if I, you you're like Thomas, if I could just see his hands and see his feet, then I, then I would believe. It's not going to happen. Last I checked, Jesus is not in the habit of showing up to people in that same way anymore. So we weren't there. We didn't see it. God has a solution for that, and it's rituals. God has a solution, and it's rituals. Ritual breeds familiarity. There's something this morning when you walked in that was comforting. There's something about walking into the same thing each week that's comforting. Now, I know that some of you think, well, we ought to change everything and so on and church is boring and this and that. They'd only do it this way or that way. But there is something about your ever-changing life and your, your upheaval in your world that looks forward to some things that are, that are based on ritual. Some things that have the same elements all the time. There's something about coming in and you hear the music. Same CD each week. We can mix it up. You just don't right now. There's something about that you look forward to. Some of you sit in the same seat every single week, don't you? And you have been forever. You wouldn't know what to do, and it's happened to you, hasn't it? Listen, it's happened to you. You know what I'm talking about. You come in and you start kind of looking. I, you can't say it loud, you know, because you're not supposed to do that, you know. And, you know, a preacher would get mad at you if you walked over and said, hey, you're in my seat. And I probably would. I'd get mad at you if you did that. All right. We'd have some issues. But you don't know what to do. You sit in a different spot. And listen, those of you that always sit over here, that's a different church over there, isn't it? <laughs> You know, I any mean, clue what it's like on the other side of the aisle. And those of you that have been sitting over here for years and years and years, you've learned to lean the right way and whatever. You'd come over here and you'd be like, my goodness, I never even knew. You know, you, it's a different church over here. Some of it I think you all just think they're weird and vice versa and whatever, you know. But we have our rituals, don't we? And there's something comforting about those. There's something about rituals that that do something for us. I've joked before, when I was preparing as a senior in high school to play in the, the Kentucky High School State Championship game, I, I, baseball players are weird, and we have these different rituals, and some call them superstitions, I just, it's just preparation, you know. But I would I would get dressed the same way before every game, and as I was buckling my belt before that game, I, I, it hit me. Now, I don't know why I didn't catch it before, but I put a left sock on before a right sock, and so everything came back off, and I had to start all the way over again. Get that right sock on first, you know. But there's something about our rituals that they do something for us. In some ways, they're they're comforting. They breed familiarity. They take us back in time. They make historical events for us come alive when we see them reenacted. Now, now our response to, to God's rituals and to His commands on rituals is extremely important. Our response must be that we will never let our rituals become ritualistic. We'll never let our rituals become ritualistic. Now, you know what I'm talking about here. Because you have certain things that you do, and you do them because they mean something to you, and then there are other things you do, and you couldn't explain why on earth you do it. It doesn't matter to you. It's just what you do. Ritualistic means that we participate, but we don't really know why. Can't explain why I do it. We participate, but it's really only out of obligation. And folks, as a church... As individual believers in Christ, if what we do cannot be explained anymore, if it has no particular meaning for us, if it doesn't stir our souls in any way, then it's become ritualistic. We're just going through the motions. This isn't about where you sit on a Sunday morning. I don't care. What I'm saying is if what we do as believers, if what we do as a church no longer stirs our souls, if we can't explain it, if we're doing it only out of obligation, then it's become no longer an impactful ritual that God planned for us, but something ritualistic and dead that honestly we need to reevaluate. Let me give you three ways quickly this morning to keep our rituals from becoming ritualistic. The first is to participate. Now you say, hold on, you just told me, don't just do it because you're just going through the motions. Yeah, but I'm not going to tell you not to do it. Isn't that sometimes our response? Well, this is ritualistic, so I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, I got into the habit of going to church and it just didn't mean anything to me, so I decided never to go back. Well, that doesn't make any sense. There is a way to participate in these things without them becoming... Ritualistic. You realize that, that this is really not optional to participate in the rituals that God has laid down for us. When I look at the New Testament, there's several different things that I look at and say God has told us as believers to do these things in a ritual fashion. You know, one is to gather together. God told us in Hebrews not to forsake gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but to get together on a regular basis as believers, as a church, to encourage one another and spur each other on in greater faith. So getting together on Sunday is something that really, as believers, is not optional. Now, I don't mean that I'm taking attendance and notes and whatever. I understand how life goes. It's not a legalistic thing, but the idea of getting together, is it's not optional. You want to be the the, the most complete Christian that you can be. You want deeper faith in the Lord. One of the things that you've got to do, and I'm preaching to the choir this morning because guess what? You're here. But one of the things you've got to do is gather with other believers on a regular basis. There is nothing individual about Christianity other than personal faith in the Lord for personal salvation. Other than that, it's a team sport. We're also commanded to baptize new believers. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 28. To, to go into and, and all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a ritual that we do, but, it, but it, it draws us into the story of what Jesus did for us. It's not to be ritualistic. We're also commanded to share in the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. Jesus talked about it. Paul talked about it. And so we participate in these different rituals, gathering, baptism, communion, and so on. And they're all commanded for our benefit. They help provide consistent spiritual growth. Discipleship, and they also protect us. They protect us from false teaching, from drifting spiritually. The Lord's Supper is done because Jesus commanded it. He was the one who instituted it. He said, This is what you're to do in remembrance of me. Commemorating is a sign of what I've done for you. It was practiced by the early church it presents the gospel it shows us the body and the blood of jesus talks about his resurrection he says do this until i come for you so it causes us to remember and to celebrate what god has done so first let me encourage you do not give up participating in the rituals of christianity not so that you'll score points with god but because they are they have tremendous value secondly let me encourage you when you participate to celebrate Celebrate. They have tremendous meaning. So don't miss it. The rituals of gathering together, of, of celebrating baptism, and, and as we'll do later on today, of participating in the Lord's Supper, it's not those things are not meant to, for us to do them so God will get off our back about stuff. It's not a superstition. It's not, a, not to be a boring expression of some dead faith. They're meant to be a joyous reminder of the ongoing effects of what God did and continues to do. And so we often let them drift the other way and simply go through the motions. We take the joy and the life and the meaning and the celebration out of it. But that's not what God has intended. There's huge meaning behind the rituals that Jesus laid out for the church. It causes us to remember things. If you want to write down this reference, do it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Let me read this to you. Here's something that we that we're reminded of every time we participate in <laughs> communion. In the Lord's Supper, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we celebrate communion here in a few minutes, we're going to be remembering that Jesus left heaven, that he paid a debt that he didn't owe, one that we owed and could never pay, but also that he's alive. Paul said it in verses 9 through 11. And God gave him the name, highly exalted him, gave him the name that's above every name, And he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Those who are in heaven, uh, on earth, under the earth will all bow to him. He is alive. Ritual of the Lord's Supper causes us to look back at those things and to remember. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 if you want to write this down as well. read this to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 23. Paul was writing and he was trying to correct some misuse of the Lord's Supper among the Corinthians. And he said this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord, took Je- uh, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant established in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread, or eat this bread rather, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We look back and we remember the cross and the resurrection. Jesus said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you to establish a new way of you relating to God. It's through his blood. And every time we take communion, we look back on that message and we proclaim the message of the cross, the message of undeserved love, the message of substitution, that Jesus took our place, the message of reconciliation, that He and He alone bridged the gap between us and God. The message of justification at first Corinthians chapter first, Second Corinthians chapter five tells us that that we were given in exchange our sin for his righteousness. We remember the message of sanctification that Jesus makes us like him through the ministry of the cross. And then we celebrate As we remember, we celebrate that we're forgiven, that we're victorious. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 puts it this way, verse 52. In a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility, talking about our bodies, and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place, death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we take the Lord's Supper in a few moments, we're going to celebrate that we are forgiven, that we are victorious, and that we have a future home in heaven. The third way to keep them from becoming ritualistic is to communicate. Participate, celebrate, communicate. That's Baptist right there. I ain't going to lie to you. They all kind of rhyme. You hear that? You should be impressed by now. I'm just telling you. Some, Come on. Impressed. Communicate. <clears throat> Where are we? Communicate. This is vital, honestly, for those who follow us. I want you to go back to Exodus chapter 12 real quick. If you still got your place there. Get back there. Look at verse 25. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as He promised, this hadn't happened yet, but it, but it will, He's saying, you are to observe this ritual. When your children ask you, what does this ritual mean to you? You are to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our homes. So the people bowed down and worshipped. And the Israelites went and did this just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. Do you see the question? What does this ritual mean to you? Not, what does it mean to me? That's a wrong question. But what does it mean to you? What does it mean? You realize that we've got young people in here in just a moment who are going to be sitting with us, participating in the Lord's Supper? And some of them will be wondering, what does this mean? And guess who ought to be able to answer that question? You and me. We ought to be able to answer the question. God said, you know what, what's going to happen? When you lead your children through this, Israelites, they're going to ask you, what, what does this mean to you? And he gave them the answer and he said, you ought to be ready with an answer to say, you know what, what this means is we reenact, we remember, we go back, we participate, we celebrate in what God has done for us. Just like he's continuing to do it to this day. The ritual was a way to retell the story. Passover wasn't just an event, wasn't just a ritual, wasn't just a rule from God that he arbitrarily set from heaven just to say, look what I can make them do. That's not what God was doing. It was a means for communicating to future generations what God had said and what God had done and who God is. Jesus instituted communion for the same purpose, to communicate the story. First Corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 and 20 through 26. Paul said, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How much of what we do as a church, how much of what you do as an individual Christian can you explain? And I mean that. Can you explain why you go to church? Can you explain why baptism matters? Can you explain why in just the moment we'll participate in the Lord's Supper? Can you explain why we sing? Can you explain why that dude gets up every Sunday and talks to us? Can you explain those things? Do you know the why? I believe it's important that we communicate. Because you know what's going to happen if not? For you and for me and for those who follow us, do you know what our rituals are going to become? Ritualistic. Boring, meaningless, pointless, and useless. And you say, well, hold on, how can communion, how can baptism, how can church attendance ever become those things? Well, just look inside, you'll figure it out. They've been there for you, haven't they? I know they've been there like that for me. If we're unable to communicate why we do it, or we say, well, we do it, but I don't know why, or we do it because we've just always done it, That I wonder, do they matter to us in any way? Do they stir our souls? Do we understand? Have we participated rightly? Are we truly celebrating? And can we communicate? Now, the, the application for this morning's sermon is going to happen here in just a second. Okay? We are going to participate together in the Lord's Supper. It's a ritual. It's an important ritual. But this morning, my prayer is that for you and for me and for then us together, that we not let it be ritualistic this morning, that we not just sort of go through the motions, but that we pause and we participate through remembering, we celebrate through commemorating what Jesus has done, and that we challenge ourselves to be able to communicate to those who follow us, here's why this matters, here's what this means, and so let's participate and celebrate and communicate so that this ritual takes on all the meaning that Jesus intended for it. I'm going to ask our deacons if you guys would go ahead and make your way down here. They'll be serving us this morning, different elements of communion. So guys, if you can go ahead and grab that. Let me give you some instructions while they're coming, okay? Uh, what will happen in just a minute is they'll hand out first a, a small little cracker. What I want you to do is hang on to that. And I'll come and read a scripture, and then we'll uh, we'll take that together as a church. And then after that, they'll hand out a small little cup that's got some juice in it, symbolizing the blood of Jesus, and we'll take that together as well. So hang on to that. Let me encourage you: if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then this morning I would encourage you to participate. If you are not, and you say, I, "I don't really believe I am," then let me encourage you not to. I don't, we won't make fun of you or call you out or anything like that. There's certainly no obligation this morning. This is a way to celebrate this ritual that Jesus gave to us. So please don't do it out of obligation. Let me encourage you in the time when when the the cracker or the, the juice is being passed out, spend some time with the Lord. Paul talked about how there's a time of confession and soul searching to some degree and making things right between one another that should take place before we take communion. And so I encourage you to do those things. Whatever it is that can add meaning and joy and celebration to this ritual. Let me encourage you to do those things. Danny's going to play for us, and and as I said, take the time as these things are being handed out. Spend some time with the Lord, and search your heart, and let Him be make you right with Jesus this morning. this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we do this this morning in remembrance of you, and we thank you for your sacrifice. Lord, that, that is impossible really for us to truly comprehend, only that we We can say thank you, and we give you praise this morning, and we celebrate the body that was broken for us, broken for our sin, that we might be made new. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take that together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, this morning we proclaim the freedom that we have by your death. We thank you that once and for all you took care of our sin. We thank you this morning for your sacrifice on the cross. For the blood of the new covenant that we can go directly to you and get to God. We thank you for washing us clean with your blood. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take that together. We're going to close this morning with the three verses that we normally sing. Our ritual on just as I am. I promise you that we're not going to sing 72 verses until 10 people come down front, all right? But this morning, let this old song, this old ritual, if you will, of singing just as I am, let it be something more than ritualistic. Hear the words and sing them from your heart. If you would, join me and let's stand together.